Welcome to Cinema 11 at the Jam Factory. That's where we were recording The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas. We cannot just hurt people. A Spider-Man movie that doesn't feature Spider-Man? How does that work? We find out with Venom. You really need to see how easy this is going to be. Oh, you know this from all your previous heists? Take Ocean's Eleven, cut it down to four crimps, make it a real story and have them steal $12 million worth of books. That's American Animals. Hello. Hello. Who is that that you were talking to? It's surprising that one of the greatest playwrights throughout history hasn't had that many movie adaptions to his plays. Well, that changes with The Seagull. Right. This is going to be fun. And listen up, Whovians. You have the chance to watch the debut episode of the first female Doctor Who at the movies. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Kyron Wheatley, and I've seen heaps of movies, but none of those. Luckily, Barry McIntyre and Michael Campbell both have... In a little bit, we have a Village Cinemas Gold Class Double Pass to give away, but first... I'm Eddie Brock. I'm a reporter. I always seem to find myself questioning something the government may not be looking at. I found something really bad. And I have been... Who's that bad? I have been playing so much Spider-Man on my PlayStation. I have been swinging through New York like, well, Spider-Man. But I have not come across Venom yet. He's a villain in the Spider-Man series that you're also unlikely to find in a Marvel movie anytime soon. We'll get to why in a moment. But first, tell me about Tom Hardy as this supervillain. So it's been a while since you have seen any iteration of Venom. He debuted in Spider-Man 3 in 2007. This time, Tom Hardy plays the character Eddie Brock, a.k.a. Venom. And this guy, Eddie, is a journalist and he ends up acquiring the powers of an alien symbiote. And he has to release his alter ego as Venom to save his life. It's a little bit Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Yeah. Two-Face. Seems like a lot of movies have this theme. I guess comic books are kind of about dual identity all the time. You love comic books. I do love comic books. What's the history of Venom? So this is why it's surprising that Spider-Man's not in it, because it's very wrapped up in Spider-Man. Eddie Brock is always a journalist with Peter Parker. They always had a rivalry with each other. Spider-Man originally got the black symbiote. Got that black suit, you remember, from Spider-Man 3? And then yeah, I played in the PlayStation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then famously, once it goes on Eddie Brock, it kind of corrupts him to become a villain, which right. is Venom. And he's driven by his, his hatred of Spider-Man and he wants to destroy him. Even in the comic books, he has a big emblazoned white spider across his chest that's kind of mm. gone in this incarnation because they can't really use Peter Parker. But how does he fit into the comic book world like do people like this character are they hanging out to see this character on film there's a big fan base for him in the 90s comics went a bit extreme and uh you can tell a 90s comic book characters people like venom deadpool harley quinn they're always quipping they're a bit extreme they're not like your normal golden age of comic book superman the boy scout or anything like that they're these like crazy anti-heroes we haven't seen this one yet but in the trailer do you feel like do you pick that up from the character, Vari? Yeah, it's got this Deadpool-ish-esque mm. vibe going on. Yeah, Deadpool sort of broke the ceiling for the anti-hero being the main protagonist of a film. So I think some of the problems that Venom has had in making his own movie is that he is an anti-hero. And I think they were talking about how oh, people don't want to see a, a villain as the main protagonist. But there's been a long history of the anti-hero in films like Clint Eastwood in early Western films like Fistful of Dollars was a classic anti-hero and 
like Deadpool and movies in the modern age and Harley Quinn, everybody's liking these villains. So why not? There was a quote that the director, Ruben Fleischner, the guy that made Zombieland, said, and he, which I, I kind of find confusing. He said, because there's no real heroes in our movie, it leads room for more villains in our movie which doesn't really make any sense. Mm, I think okay. it's a way for him to explain away the yeah, fact. Yeah, it sort of seems like backward justification. It does it, a little right? bit, doesn't it? Yeah. So I'm hoping, because um, the, the people that, that made it are quite good. Ruben Fleischman is a good director. I'm hoping that they have an angle, like Deadpool had a good angle. They had a lot of restrictions on that film, but they found a good angle to make that story work. And I'm hoping that Venom can kind of do the same. We will eat both your arms and then both of your legs and then we will eat your Right up your head. You will be this armless, legless, faceless thing, won't you? Rolling down the street like a turd in the wind. What the hell are you? We are Venom. So why is Spider-Man not in this movie? Maybe the nerd should tell us. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So... Sony always had the rights to the Spider-Man films. Ever since the 90s when Marvel was broke, if you can Mm. imagine such a thing, they sold the rights to Spider-Man to Sony and their contract said they need to make a movie every couple of years or they lose those rights. Tobey Maguire movies came along. They were all successful. The third one kind of destroyed it. Is this why there's been so many Spider-Man reboots? This is exactly why there's been so many Spider-Man reboots. If they didn't reboot it, they lose it. It got to Reboot the point, it or lose it, that's what I say. <laughs> it got to the point where uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2 was so poorly received that Sony decided to just lend the character back to Marvel yeah. and put him in those Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. But that's then, incredible. It's literally use it or lose it clause. It, it honestly, a, it really is. a massive major studio film contract. Yeah. That's exactly how Daredevil went back to Marvel. They just didn't make one in time and it went back. Yeah, Yeah, that's why like a lot of movies have those stipulations Mm -hmm. as well. But the reason that Spider-Man maybe is or isn't in the movie that I've never made it 100% clear is because... That means he isn't. This is produced by (laughs) Sony and the others are produced by Disney. So what do we think about Tom Hardy in this role? Like when I see the poster, I sort of think Ryan Philippe. Yeah, it doesn't really look like him on the posters, does it? I thought that. It didn't look like him. And Tom Hardy is a man that so constantly changes how he looks. Mm, Sometimes he really bulks up and then he really thins down. Sometimes in the same movie. (laughs) Sometimes in the same movie. And I don't know what it is about Hollywood needing to cover his face all the time. Mm. But Bane <laughs> yeah. had that mask on. Totally. Dunkirk, who was wearing a mask the whole Hollywood. time. Tom is beautiful. He's, yeah. he's, a, he's a good looking Let chap. him out. <laughs> Free range Tom, that's what I say. <laughs> yeah, he's a great actor. I'd love to see what he can do with his character. And, and he's done I'll quite see what he can do with his face. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want from me? You'll find out. I'm so sorry. But what do we think from the trailer? Does he look like he's embodied Venom? This is a lot cooler Eddie Brock than the comics. Eddie Brock was always more of a jock in the comics, but they've made him Tom Hardy cool, I've noticed. Which you don't want to follow a complete jerk around the whole movie, do you? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) So I do see a similar plot and theme to the movie that we reviewed earlier in the series, Upgrade. Yeah, that's right. The guy gets a little computer chip in his neck and it kind of takes over his body and the computer chip's now in control. This idea that the hero or the anti-hero of the story isn't exactly willing and his morals are a bit skewed, so there's this thing that's taking over. Over his, his body. 
Yeah, well, that's you know, that's all Sam Harris's free will, and whether we actually have true control <laughs> over where we go in this world. And you know, if you had a cancer and killed someone, is it the cancer's fault or is it your fault? You know, it's very complex. These are the themes that we imagine <laughs> Venom. Venom. <laughs> we'll discuss. <laughs> Apart from comic book fans, who should see this movie? I think if that idea interests you of like the dueling personalities, Jekyll and Hyde style storytelling, I think this one this will work. Yeah, movies like Deadpool, who are non-conventional heroes, and Upgrade, which we reviewed earlier, those darker, twisted movies as well. It pains me to see you embarrass your father. But you don't know what it is. You're in, or you're out. That thing that could make your life special. You're in. Or you're out. You're in. Or you're out. How can I tell you if I'm in or I'm out without you telling me the first thing about what I might be in or out of? This would be something dangerous and very exciting. American Animals is about Trump in the White House. No, it's not. It's about a group of friends who steal some books. Just a few books worth $12 million. What happened? That's a great question. This movie, what a ride this whole movie is. This is about four college-age students who they're just kind of bored with their lives and they somehow convince themselves that they need to be special and do something extraordinary. And mind-bogglingly, they decide that they want to rob their library at their school with these ancient art books that are worth $12 million. It's the most mind-boggling thing to think. Not only is it a crazy story, but this is real. Like oh, People do this. And for some reason, they decided, you know what? We're going to do this for no apparent reason. Well, I saw that in the marketing where they said students think they're in a movie. That's what's kind of cool about this movie is it's a heist movie in which the characters only really know what they've learned from heist movies. So they're basing <laughs> everything they do off you know, old heist movies and what they read in books. And it's so mind-boggling that it is the lazy student version of yeah. what they think an Ocean's Eleven heist is. To be fair, if I pulled off a heist, it's because I watched Ocean's Eleven. Like, that's how, uh, you know. Yeah, they just kind of stumble from one thing to another. And at every point, they could have just been like, mm, no, we shouldn't do this. And it just kept going. And it was kind of just this like, oh, I'll stop if... You stop. It's like a slow motion car wreck, isn't it? Yes. You can see where things are going wrong and someone should have stopped it at this point, but no one did. It's such an interesting version of a heist movie. The way that they've presented it is something I've never really seen before. At least for me, I thought it was one of the more unique movies I've watched all year. Is it more like an Argo, like a serious, this is this is what happened, these are the facts, or is it more like, what was that, King of Thieves, I think it was, yeah, where yeah. they steal old guys stealing the gold. Yeah. Bit of fun, bit of comedy. Which sort of angle does it take? Both. It, yeah, it, 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 yeah, weirdly both. <laughs> yeah, right. there's, there's an element to this movie that they don't really allude to too much in the marketing, but this movie is actually half documentary. And what's fascinating right. is they have the real guys that committed this crime sitting down for an interview, telling you this story, and then they've gone off and shot it like a Hollywood movie. Right. So like in a current affair reenactment. A little bit, <laughs> yeah. but, but with Hollywood actors and Hollywood <laughs> yeah. budget. And what's kind of interesting is their stories don't line up all the time. They contradict each other with what they remember. And the movie will just adjust accordingly. That's so th there'll be a scene in which mm. one guy's like, I think we're at a party and it cuts to a party and they're talking. And then another guy goes, I think we're in a car at this time. And the scene just changes shot to shot. It's, it's really like interesting. The conversation continues through different exactly, yeah. locations. Yeah. Yeah, right. uh, but never in a confusing way. Always in a fun, creative way that you're like, this is, this is really cool. 
Yeah, this was the most interesting thing about the movie, I think, because I didn't expect it. I didn't know anything about the movie going into it. And then they just sort of start with, you know, a single shot uh, framed on this guy and he's talking about, okay, so I did this, and then switches to yeah. the that fictional narrative, the, the actors playing them. It, it doesn't go back and forth too much, but just enough. So you get the story and then you see it happening. Um, so I know the director, Bart Layton, approached uh, these guys, the actual ones, uh, while they were still incarcerated and got all the story and started Spoiler writing alert. it and put it, putting it together. <laughs> well. They, they do tell you up front. That yeah. <laughs> this yeah. doesn't go well. In fact, yeah. I don't think there's ever a heist movie where everything goes fine and yeah, everyone's perfect. Right. It's only the fictional ones where everyone gets away. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, how do you know the story? No one's telling the true story well, if they're still on the run. The director even said if they had have finished watching the heist movies they were basing their heist on, they would have realised that most of them don't end well. <laughs> <laughs> so the final film obviously had to be made after they were out. So it's been a long process for them and I know the director didn't let any of the actors meet their real life counterparts so they couldn't be influenced by any characterizations or sympathize with them. Any sort of reality. Can I just say how dumb this entire thing is? How do you know no one's going to get hurt? The, the idea of doing a heist movie this way is so fascinating. Bart Layton made a documentary a couple of years ago called The Imposter, which was very well known for being kind of similar. It had dramatic recreations and nothing to the extent that he does here. But he's good at finding these subjects that are so weirdly, fascinatingly flawed. And all the characters in American Animals, I think, their whole idea is their life is good. They had no reason to do this. They just were bored, I oh, guess. Oh, because I'm kind of in two minds about this. I did enjoy it and the way that they're telling the story is very different. But then on the other hand, it just seems like white male privilege. They just stole because they could. And even though they went to prison, like they get a movie out of it. So yeah. it, I feel like they romanticise <laughs> this crime. I, that's kind of what this movie is about, is about the idea that they are privileged. And I don't think they come off looking good in this movie. I think they come off looking really stupid because mm. – for no reason, they committed this crime that sent them to prison. So I, like, I do understand where you're coming from. And I think if they had have got away with it and not had any kind of repercussions for their crimes, that, that would be more of a problem. But I think the, the theme of this movie very much what is... Are these, <laughs> what are these people doing? They've got perfectly good lies and they've convinced themselves that they don't. Isn't the reason that they are worth $12 million and having $12 million would be fun. That's, that's the, the yeah. genesis. But really the idea is they just want to feel cool. They want to feel special. Uh, I, think the, I think the main guys, I think the main okay. protagonist in the film, he, in his interview pieces, mentions many times that it's this misguided quest for personal glory. And they were just sort of bored and they were like, what am I doing with my life? My whole life you get told as a child and going through school that you're just, you should be something special. You're going to amount to something and you get to your sort of twenties and think, Oh no, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know where I am or who I am. Go to movie world. <laughs> like, uh, like, you know, get a, jump on a roller coaster. Yeah. Everyone has different opinions on how to do that. <laughs> you know, cause cinema is quite a young art form when you compare it to literature yeah. or <laughs> painting it's still within the first century or thereabouts so it's fun when i think when they do something new and different like the big short did something different with trying to tell this in-depth story and the, getting these facts across the way they did it with margot robbie in the bath talking to camera so this sounds really fun that they're half a documentary half fictionalized or you know, whatever dramatized version of it to tell this story. I think they even get away with some slight inaccuracies because this is how the guys remember it. And they never say, this is exactly what happened. They say, this mm. is exactly what they, they, said. they said happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I, yeah, you're right. Cause I walking out of it, I was thinking, I love a heist movie, right? 
but I've never seen one get a done. Bit formulaic, don't they? They do a little bit, but I've never seen one do it in this unique a way that made me think like, wow, I've never seen that, which is not something that you think often seeing so many movies. And I think there's definitely a version of this movie that's way more conventional and normal that's just not interesting. Because the, the heist itself isn't particularly that complicated that they were doing. It's the story of these four guys and how they manipulate each other into doing this and how their stories all conflict with each other. That's what's interesting about mm. the movie, not the heist itself. So you should see this film. I think if you want something that, that you've never quite seen before, this is the movie, in fact, that I've texted the most people afterwards to say, <laughs> go see American Animals when it comes out. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, if you want something that challenges the traditional heist movie, well, you, you may not actually want the stars of the film to get away with it, and that interesting mix of genres, the use of documentary conventions within a fictional narrative. It's just something really unique. Also in cinemas this week, Night School. Night School. Did you see Kevin Hart on Jimmy Fallon the other night? With the animals? Yeah, yeah when that was funny. <laughs> Robert Irwin brought out all the, oh, the yeah, Australian animals. Oh, yeah, and he was really animals. scared he by an emu. freaked out. <laughs> that is worth searching in life. Alpha is in cinemas, speaking of animals this week. Yes, prehistoric dog movie. And don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Very gritty Joaquin Phoenix movie. Classic Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Gritty. Is there any other? Doesn't touch a script if the shine isn't worn off it. You can hear about all of those by clicking on the previous episode in whatever podcast app you're in right now. I'm the reason for your misery these past 20 years. I've only been miserable the past 10. I'm just a woman like any other. This is your chance to be a woman unlike any other. In 1968, the Russian playwright Anton Chekhov's The Seagull was turned into a film starring Vanessa Redgrave, which is one of those film names I know but don't really know why. And that's almost it for Chekhov, which is surprising. You know, he's one of those names that follows Shakespeare's when it comes to playwriting. And Willie's plays are movies, and Arthur Miller's plays are movies, and Tennessee Williams' plays are movies. So I'm very interested now in how they turn this pretty popular script down at VCA and NIDA into a film on the silver screen. Yeah, I'm always interested when they turn plays into movies to see how someone else envisions it because whenever you're watching theatre, it's very different to what you can see on a screen in the different situations and, and settings and things. So they did a really good job at making me understand this play <laughs> because <laughs> it's obviously, as you said, based on Russian dramatist Anton Chekhov's play from 1895. It's about ageing actress Irina and her lover, who's a famous author called Boris Tregorin, and they visit her family estate because her older brother is sick. And Arena has a son, Constantine, who is in love with the girl next door, Nina, who then falls for Boris. Right. So like most plays, it's like the interpersonal relationships between these characters. Like, like most plays, it's, it's dialogue. Everything's expressed through dialogue. Uh, and I think you're right, it's interesting with adaptions because you know, the, the play language and the cinema language are different and mm. you need to find a way to do both. If it's just two people sitting down talking, it's not particularly cinematic. No. But I think they try and change it up a few times. Baz Luhrmann is pretty good at changing mm. it up. Shall we say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, who's the director of this film? How do they go? Uh, Michael, uh, I, I looked him up because I, I didn't recognize the name straight away. I, the only thing I recognized was the early 2000s horse riding film Flickr that right. he had directed. <laughs> Interesting. And a bunch of TV I've never heard he wasn't, of. He wasn't the draw necessarily for me. Yeah, if you did any drama or maybe even English in school or university, you'll know this play. Mm. So it's very Shakespearean um, in these plot devices, like there's a play within a play and it's very character-driven and things. But with the content of the play being so traditional, the director doesn't do anything like Baz Luhrmann and, and, and make it too modern. So it's very 
conventional and traditional, but it's the actors, I think, that because you recognise them, that's what uh, keeps you interested, I guess, because sometimes the dialogue is quite heavy and there's all these characters and I'm like, who's that guy? Who's that guy? <laughs> Who is he? So we've got Sasha Ronan. Who we talk about constantly on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Brooklyn is probably one of the big ones. Yeah, mm. we, I think we talked about On Chesil Beach a couple oh, of weeks yeah. ago. Interestingly enough, her then love interest in this one is Billy Howell, mm. who was also the husband in On Chesil Beach. Yeah, they're together again. Elizabeth Moss from Handmaid's Everything. Tale. Yeah, and brilliant. Annette Benning. I mean, Hollywood royalty. Annette yeah. Benning. Corey Stoll. I don't know that name. Uh, House of Cards. Cards. And also Ant-Man. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. if it is a play, and if they are close shots and it's very much about the dialogue, then it's really going to be about the acting, isn't it? Yeah. So and do it, they live up to that? Are they good? Well, there's an interesting choice they make is to make everybody American, even though it's set in Russia. Like all their accents. Yeah. All their accents are American. And I think it comes down to the fact that the majority of the cast were American, so they made everyone else adapt. And when you've got a play translated from Russian into English and then you have an actor like Billy Howe, who I think is very good, not speaking his natural accent, some of the dialogue comes off a little unnatural. Right. And I think the the person that lands it the most as far as like a naturalistic performance and the dialogue never seems to quote-unquote play-like is Corey Stoll. He seemed very natural. He, he was kind of a bit charming, a little bit sinister. But when he spoke, and I think it helps that he's a natively American guy, it didn't seem too... Playwright dialogue heavy, if that makes right, sense. Right, yeah. So if the director hasn't changed it up too much, hasn't modernised it, why are we watching it? Why is there an 1895 play on the screen? Does it speak to today at all? It's, just, it's a performance piece more than anything, I'd say. You go because all the performances across the board are pretty stellar. I mean, Sasha Ronan, obviously, kind of a, a bright star, she always is in any movie. But even Annette Benning is, is great. She's this really... Uh, vain actress that, that can't not be the center of attention and she kind of nails it. Corey Stoll's really great. Billy Howe, despite the fact that his accent slips every now and then, is very good. I, I think it's it's for the performances, which is ultimately also why you see a play. One last question. Is it set today or is it set back in 1895? They, is it a costume drama or are they wearing wearing Crocs and things? Yeah, they're, they're all wearing the costumes of the, the time right. period, be it with American accents, mm. kind of inexplicably. Yeah, there's a few of the guys wear those little fuzzy Russian hat things. Yeah. Uh, there are a few guys walking around in the background with their shirts open, yeah. so I counted four. <laughs> I think I said to you in the screening, that's the most Russian thing I've ever seen. It's a guy with an axe over his shoulder, no shirt, walking along. You get all these costume dramas. I am looking forward to the croc dramas. <laughs> so who should see this film? If you enjoy stories uh, like the Shakespearean plays or even Jane Austen, those period dramas with great costumes and great performances and you just want to see some like solid drama and maybe a few sad tragic love stories, this is it. If you think you're up to date with plays just by seeing one William Shakespeare, maybe this yeah, yeah. <laughs> could help you out. All of this is new to me. Everyone seems very excited about this new Doctor Who. There's been many Doctors Who. Is that right? Is it like Attorneys General? Doctors Who, Doctors <laughs> yeah. Who the plural That's, that's the plural, yeah. Uh, there's been many Doctors Who, but this is the first female Doctor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, so the debut episode of Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor is going to be screening on the big screen because it's a big event. And we do it every year. We screen the new Doctor Who and they always pack out. They're, I've actually seen a few of them. Uh, Are you a Whovian? I am a Whovian, yeah. It's, I, am I like the token nerd on the show? Yes. <laughs> it's like, no, you're just the bigger nerd. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. I, I went and saw the 50th anniversary a couple of years ago back when that happened. And I've never been in a cinema so like 
packed with excitement as I mm. was in the Doctor Who yeah. screen. You can include yourself in that excitement if you want, Canva. I was definitely included <laughs> in that excitement. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I'm super excited to see so what, what Jodie Whittaker does. Um, for very, very deep cut Doctor Who fans, she seems very Matt Smith-esque so mm. far what I've seen. Who is my favorite Doctor. Um, they've each got like a certain kind of personality trait that's definable, I would say. Capaldi just before her was very crotchety. She looks very <laughs> full of joy and full of wonder, which is kind of Matt Smithy. I know that's very niche, but I thought I'd say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Don't yeah. apologize. Don't apologize. It's a one-off, right? Yeah. So it's just the premiere of the new season with this doctor in it. And can I say, I just love that they went with a female doctor and did not bow to public pressure about changing the gender of the doctor. Yeah. So is this playing... Everywhere? Can you can you walk into any cinemas? There's only a select few that you're going to be able to see this. It's only playing at six cinemas, so do make sure. Just look it up. Look it up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, these are, these are like such fun fan events, and I, I really love that we do this every year. For your chance to win a Village Cinemas Gold Class double pass, perhaps to see Venom, go to Facebook or Instagram and leave a comment on the Cinema Crew post, and tell us what your favourite comic book film is of all time with the hashtag The Cinema Crew. Next week, Ryan Gosling goes to the moon. First Man is the Neil Armstrong story. Lost and Buffy and The Martian and Daredevil. Well, we have a new film from writer Drew Goddard in Bad Times at the El Royale. You might not know that an Australian actor is behind the old saying, In Like Flynn. Well, next week we have the biopic. Until then, thanks, Cambo. Thank you. Thank you, Vari. Cheers. I'm Kyron Wheatley, and we'll see you, or at least you'll hear us next week on The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas.